0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study.
1: Welcome back to Matan's podcast. I have unofficially begun a long-envisioned series speaking with awesome Jewish women involved in meaningful work in the Jewish world. Today, I am joined by Dr. Michelle Sarna, who is a licensed psychologist in private practice and serves as a psychologist at SAR Academy in Campstone. Among other positions, she has served as the associate director for training and professional development of the OU's Jewish Learning Initiative on college campuses, also known as JLIC, and was a JLIC educator at NYU. Michelle co-founded and co-directs the Orthodox Leadership Project. She lectures and writes on topics related to psychology, spirituality, development, and family life. She lives in downtown Manhattan with her husband and six children. Michelle, it's a pleasure to have you here.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, thank you.
1: So I didn't say on your bio that we also happen to know each other from uh, from a very young age. (laughs) Our families are very close with one another, but you are here completely on your own merit, Michelle, so all is well. You know, there have been many elements to your uh, both religious life and, and your involvement in Jewish leadership over the past, I guess, at this point, over two decades. And while, of course, our focuses shift over time in what we're involved in at the at the moment, I guess I maybe want to go back in time a little bit with you and speak about, you know, you spent, and you'll correct me with the number of years, many, many years uh, connected to the NYU campus. You've raised, you know, and are still raising uh, many children in that environment. And in light of everything that's going on in the current moment with the tremendous anti-Semitism and a big shift that's of course been happening over the past two decades on campuses. I guess I'm curious maybe to start from that space and hear about, even even going back to the early years, uh, what that kind of looked like to be involved in Jewish leadership and also raising a family in in that kind of environment, I'm curious what what your perspective is on both what was then and sort of how things have shifted over time.
2: So yes, um, we actually have been have raised have been raising our six children, um, ages ten to twenty one in NYU for the past. 12 plus years, we've actually been raising them in an NYU dorm, um, which has been quite a rich experience. And actually we came to NYU uh, shortly after Yehuda and I got married, we had intended to make Aliyah and I was finishing up my PhD and he was um, eager to have a rabbinic position serving the community. And at that point we didn't know anyone that works on college campuses. It was JLIC I think was in its first year and students had actually advocated at NYU that they wanted to have an Orthodox um, leader, educator, as part of the Hillel team. And the Hillel at the time was very responsive and actually allowed the students to have a lot of leadership in the position of choose, selecting and hiring the Orthodox um, couple that would come to campus. And we spent a Shabbos there kind of trying it out. Again, we were en route to Aliyah. This was like uh, kind of a trial um, or just for a few years um, opportunity. And we just fell in love. We fell in love with working with this age group at this juncture of their lives and um, also with downtown and being in a rich, vibrant, diverse community that um, just had so much possibility of intersections and and interconnections and we've been there since then so it's been a really remarkable journey um, I would say that professionally I have not been with the downtown community um, full-time throughout and even partly have not been professionally for at least you know the past um, 10 plus years, but um, it's still where our community is in, in a lot of ways. Um, I actually ended up pursuing my doctorate work in this age group in really focusing on the Jewish and Muslim population ages 18 to 25, because I was so um, fascinated by how ripe and rich this cohort was. It's a time in life where where people are making so many major life decisions that will anchor them um, for for so many years. And obviously no decision is permanent, but it's a time where there's a lot of exploration of one's identity. It's a time where there's a lot of people are trying, um, considering multiple possibilities about their future trajectory. It's a time where um, people are really feeling both inherently vulnerable and dependent on adults around them and also incredibly independent. Many are living away from home for the first time. So it just felt like such a rich developmental stage. And having gotten to work with the students more informally and on a communal level, I actually also got to study it academically, which was a really rich experience. And I would say that aside from getting to work with the community, one of the other draws was that we really wanted our children to grow up with a very strong religious, spiritual core and identity, and also really open to the world and open to the other. And being downtown in a vibrant, diverse community um, and working with a really wide range of students, both in terms of their Jewish affiliation and also in terms of other faiths, other ethnicities, just provided like such a, a very powerful and colorful backdrop for that. And, you know, over the course of the years, um, my children have gotten to know so many different types of people as humans, whether it was around their Shabbat table or at different programs run through the Bronfen Center at NYU, or really just also living in a very colorful part of the world um where it's not you know they everybody has a different identity and learning to be respectful and tolerant of that so um, i would say that um there's been i guess over the the 21 years that we've lived there there's been a lot of different shifts and changes um, and also i think the moment that we're at now feels very unique um and and in a very hard way
1: okay wait so before we before we get a little bit deeper into that moment so it's interesting maybe we'll probably come back to the aliyah piece later but you started off saying you were on your way to israel and then what your children ended up having was an experience that they would never have had uh, living in israel it's a very interesting sort of it's a very different kind of experience right to to have the concept of moving to israel and being in a, an environment that's largely jewish versus having this kind of this kind of diversity be the you know the playgrounds that they literally were were growing were growing up in in all those years <laughs> raising all those children and still in this environment did you ever have times where you doubted the the religious strength of that decision meaning where where you were in in doubt that this was a good path for your kids meaning it might have been a good path for you and your husband but you weren't sure about where it was going to go i will pref i will just preface it and say we all have doubts <laughs> about the choices we make so it's not a specific question to you but i'm curious because it's literally just putting you and your kids in an environment that is is not just diverse it's it's uh i would say it's almost extreme in the sense of the exposure that they'll have to as you're explaining very well a certain particular window of uh, of of adults or emerging adults, and the flip side of that same question is, what were some of the ways you went about trying to uh, ensure that they would build? And, and I know some of them, so I know that they're great, right? Of, you would ensure that they could build a strong Jewish and religious identity, specifically religious, by the way, because this is our this is you know religious, largely religious podcast. So curious, what were some of the ways? You know, of course, there's always a lot of uh, is a lot of uh, just prayer and hope that it'll go well. But I'm curious what that looked like over, over time and still does, I guess.
2: I would say that um, I feel very humbled also um, to get to listen and partner with a lot of families that are navigating these decisions and considerations as well. And I would say that if someone develops the panacea to how to raise kids that are open-minded and kind and tolerant and religiously inspired and invigorated and halachic, like i'll be first in line for that panacea and i would say that that you know one of the the blessings of this type of path is that it's um i feel like we have to be very deliberate and and conscious of like what our children are navigating and we're always discussing like i would say this conversation of where should we live next year happens every year. It's happened for the past 21 years. So wow. it's not that it's something that we felt slid into and we've taken for granted. And I, if you ask our oldest, she had a very different childhood than our youngest, because many things have, many other things have shifted around us. I would say that one of the, one of the blessings is like really, um, needing to own your religiosity and, and needing to claim it in a certain way, because it's not a given, it's not the fallback. Um, and it's also not something that you rebel against, because it's something that you need to make your own. So I I feel grateful in that. Um, I think my children have had to like figure out um, what their Judaism means t- to them in a certain way, and how they integrate it with a humanistic view of the world and with, um, which many of us do, but they've had to from kind of a young age and that we as parents have had to explain to them how Jews can be very holy and very devout and keep Shabbat and Kashrut in a very different way than we do. Or there are people that have inherent or divinity to them and are not Jewish and, and that we can and should be learning from and with, um, and connecting to, so that's been part of the ways that that we've tried to raise them, and they've raised, raised us in many ways through their questions and and through kind of pushing us and pulling us. Like I would say, um, you know, very recently, and and it's hard not to come back to to the past. Um, the past month and and a bit, which has just been so hard. But um, we during um, we live on this very busy intersection um, in downtown Manhattan, where there's a lot of traffic and visibility. Thankfully, in our apartment, it's pretty quiet. It's very soundproof. But um, we're on the second floor, and you could literally see see us from the street, which is awesome on Hanukkah and other times not not as great. Um, and when there were the Black Lives Matter protests, we hung up signs in support and we literally were conversing with some of the marchers, um, from our window and they saw my kids keep hold and seat seat. And we just were, were, you know, were kind of in solidarity that obviously we believe that Black lives have have dignity i'm not going into the yeah, yeah, I get it. other yeah. parts of the anti police etc um and it, and it was so it was such a gift to be part of it when there were the women's marches we also were a part of it they were literally like in our neighborhood and when during covid we were celebrating the healthcare workers we would bang the pots with our neighbors and and we heard the sounds from around um the city and when um, after October 7th, my our 10-year-old wanted to put up posters in solidarity with Israel on our window, again, which is very visible from the street, and my husband and I hesitated, like... Would this pose a security risk? How would the building feel? And we said to my son, like, we don't know if that's a good idea. And he said to us, you know, Iman Abba, like, when, when there, when George Floyd, who was one person was killed, we put up big signs and that was okay. And now that hundreds of Israelis were murdered, how come we can't put up a sign now? And I, you know, I think that in many ways, like, some of these, like, deep questions that I wish my children didn't have to be faced with, but become very practical and real for them in the way that they're being raised. Um, I think another part that goes both ways is that there's a lot of privilege and wealth in our neighborhood. It's one of the, a very um, expensive place to live. And also there's a lot of poverty and homelessness. And we walk to shul every Shabbos and it's it's heartbreaking. Like right in, around, uh, the, across the street from us is a homeless shelter, a hotel that was converted into a shelter um, that's housed different populations since COVID. Um, and that was a hotel that my parents stayed in when they came to visit us. And, you know, right next to us is... A facility for men who are mentally ill. There's like within a few blocks. There's a, a veterans hospital, like a few blocks away. There's so many um, places that are housing people with so many vulnerabilities and so many challenges. And and that in some ways it's hard that my kids are not in a bubble where they where they get to have a time in their childhood where they 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 see that you know life is protected or blessed. And on the other hand, I hope that it helps them be acutely aware of the blessings and privileges that they have in their life and on the need to serve others because these are not people, There's, we have a neighbor, who sits on our corner? He's a man who's in the, in one of the shelters, and you know my husband or sons will make coffee for him. He happens to be addicted to caffeine, and he was the first person to greet me back when I we returned from Israel and Sleepway camp this summer. Like he he's just our neighbor, yeah. and and I think growing up in a in a neighborhood like that just makes you so much more aware of the complexity and and richness and hardships in life and. And do I wish that I could inoculate my children against that? Yes. On the other hand, do I pray that they grow up to be like passionate, invested humans and Jew- Jews that want to just like be able to be mindful of their opportunities and give to others? Yes. And and, and I would also say that there are some there are some amazing schools downtown that my children have also daven with, and it's not just the this, the undergrads or young professionals that that have embraced them. And I would say there's a really special community spirit. If I can share one other mm-hmm. one other example that's been very moving for me, so um, right we we happened to we were in Israel for, on October seventh, and um, it was. Like heartbreaking. Yeah, and we're going to get there. We're going to get we there. Were yeah. not physically. <laughs> but I reached out, like, to, I guess, four and a half weeks ago to local shul rabbis downtown across the denominational spectrum and different community leaders, students, young professionals, um, if we could gather for a walk in solidarity with the hostages on Shabbat. And um, my husband, and like, joked to me after the first walk that he thought it would literally just have been me and my kids. But to our incredible inspiration, like, people showed up. Rabbi showed up, their congregants showed up, and we walked mostly in silence with the, and someone from the community actually donated these like humongous signs of the hostages. And we interspersed them throughout the group and we just walked and we walked, walked around, and it just, um, it was so powerful. And to have a uh, to be in Manhattan and to feel like there's a network of communities that can come together, um, was also was very powerful. It's it's been a very meaningful experience.
1: Right. It's it's so interesting. Meaning living in a place that you know, as you said, like initially you in a story you recounted that initially that wasn't even the plan, and then like, here, life has unfolded over so many years, and it's led to all these really meaningful rich different kind of relationships that have deeply impacted you know your lives of course and obviously the lives the lives of your of your children i would want to just shift a little bit to talk about uh women's leadership you know this is a matan podcast and you've you've had you know you yourself are very you know much a speaker and someone who sought after uh, to write and to and to inspire others and i'm curious a little bit about sort of where where you felt your work has been in that field, what you felt you had to offer. and also, and then I guess we'll also get to where where you would like it to to move and uh, where you'd like to see it develop.
2: So in terms of women's leadership, I feel grateful that in my lifetime, I think the opportunities for women have grown tremendously. and you know, I think someone like yourself, who is very knowledgeable in Torah and has a very important, powerful platform to like raise up the future generation of women seems like was so rare if if it existed um, when I was the age of your students. And so I do feel like in many ways I've seen it grow in in so many powerful and positive directions. Um, I would say that One of the inspiring invitations or opportunities that happened to me when I was, you know, an emerging adult was that I had chosen to pursue a career in psychology. And I actually had strongly encouraged my husband, he probably would have gone in this direction anyway, to become a rabbi because I wanted to be involved in Orthodox communal life. And I thought that that was like the best ticket in was being the wife of a rabbi and um, when we moved to NYU, I was really working on my dissertation and, and doing internships in psychology. And But I was also, we moved downtown. I really wanted to work with the NYU community and JLIC was just starting. And they deeply believed that in the value of having a male and female role model on college campuses. And so I think having had that invitation or that opportunity at such a young stage really helped frame for me that you know the like the the value of having concrete formal opportunities for women to be involved as voices and at having voices and having leadership in the orthodox community not just for the women themselves that to me is less important um, and I know we can argue on that but for Um, Not just for the women who are getting those opportunities, but for their students, for their congregants. Like, I just think it just raises up the value of the entire community. Um, And it was interesting because at the time, so we were working at NYU and President John Sexton actually had... um, in his capacity as the president of NYU had been actually very deliberate about hiring women because he said they make up more than 50 percent of the population. And up until, you know, then they'd had very few opportunities for leadership positions. So there must be so much untapped talent within that sphere. And and I very much feel that that had been the case in the Orthodox community, that we want the the most passionate and authentic and genuine and spiritual and you know it's it's there's a lot that we look for in in our in our leadership and and diversity as well and we're we're limiting ourselves by only providing opportunities for one small section not small but one section of our community and i think the other piece is is that there's this fallacy that like women should volunteer women can do everything and i think feeling very blessed to be a parent um, of six children and and also raising our children in the in the Orthodox community you many families need two salaries and also many women deserve to have a career or a profession where they feel like their you know their skills and their passions and talents are being tapped into so relying on the volunteer rabbitson just no longer felt like a reliable or reasonable solution to providing female leadership and role models within within the Orthodox community. Um, so I was blessed to be um, involved in JLIC from in the beginning. And then at one point, the RCA many, many years ago was convening a session determining the future of of the orthodox community of women in the orthodox community and a few of my our students who were very active and also what was interesting to me then was that there was this almost like such a dichotomy between the amount of leadership opportunities that orthodox students who were female had on college campuses versus the rest of their lives. Like the woman could be president of the Orthodox community, they could be Gaba got by, got by Eat, and it wasn't even controversial. And then um, they would graduate into modern Orthodox communities consisting of the same people that they dominated with in college, and none of those opportunities were available. So. Um, Two of our students, um, Jordana Fernbaum and Michelle Kornblatt, were writing this petition to the RCA, asking the RCA to please allow women to be engaged in the conversation about their future potential as leaders. And they got they or collected a thousand hand signed petitions and they hand delivered it to the then president of the RCA, who was an incredibly empathic person and said, like, I don't know what you want me to do with these. Not in not in an antagonistic way, but in terms of like, what are we supposed to do? And um, they turned to me and they said, like, well, what are you doing? Like, you're you're supposedly like our educator on campus. Like, how are you supporting us so that we graduate to a world that feels different? And um, so they kind of like lit a fire for me of of what it would look like to provide more structured opportunities. The, the women that I was, the young women on college campus were astounding, so passionate, so bright, so talented, and so like just really inclusive of others, and so were the guys. But to me, the, the thought that we would lose their voices and their talents in our communities just felt like such a grave sacrifice that was not necessary. Um, so and I've also had experience um, supporting wives of rabbis, whether um, through many years ago, I used to um, run with uh, Michelle Balfour Freeman. Kind of like support groups for the wives of rabbis at Cova and I also now um, am involved in an amazing initiative through the Orthodox Union that provides mental health training and support for um, Torah female Torah educators, whether rabbitson outreach professionals and I just see like the capacity or the op- the possibility that women engaged in meaningful ways by the community can give so much in return. And and I just wanna make sure that we're providing those opportunities and those invitations.
1: From what I understand, you really are speaking about the importance of of creating positions specifically, right? Meaning attitudes and you know the openness or women who have the capacities, that was clear to you that that existed, but that there was an importance to creating actual uh, spaces and positions for women to be involved if, uh, at, at once they finish college and be, become part of, of different kinds of communities post, post that stage of life. Uh, I'll, I'll just share what I think is interesting, which is that of course, Uh, And I'm assuming that most realize this, that Jewish life in the States and in other places, uh, in other countries outside of Israel, are much more communally, communally organized. And there is a lot to be said about that. Um, and in Israel, it's much less Communally organized, you have far fewer Official positions, whether men or women uh, That are being occupied And therefore, it's a, it's a Difficult path to go, th- meaning there's Two sides to it, one is that it's difficult To make a position for women to fill because there aren't That many positions to begin with, on the other Hand, because it's much, sort of more democratized there's actually, in, there's actually Many spaces that women can Occupy, although it won't be in an official capacity In the same way that many men are not filling Official capacities uh, in their in their sort of religious leadership roles. So A, I'm just I'm just sort of speaking to a bit of a difference here between and I think that there's constantly a need for both, meaning there is this need to have, you know, women who are not just engaged but also learned. And then there's also a need for there to actually be positions for them to fill.
2: I would say that, you know, I've been really grateful because um I was I've been involved in something called the Orthodox Leadership Project with some amazing women who I've been privileged to work with. And one of the things that we've been thinking about are what are the different ways to kind of cultivate women having a seat at the table? And you're even, not even, but also in the States, I would say there's a lot of, um, there's some formal positions um, in the way in which leadership happens. And I know that that's being worked on by different organizations from different perspectives. And I would say that there's a lot of other informal ways that women, um, can or cannot be engaged in deciding policies, in deciding how funds are spent, in in having different types of opportunities within the community. So one of the things that my friends and and I guess co-directors of the Orthodox Leadership Project have been thinking about this like in the past few years is we've been engaging cohorts of women through and be really advertising broadly. So we've had women from the Ner community and we've had women from the open Orthodox community in the same cohorts. And in these cohorts, we do leadership training um, using, um, inspired by some, um, um, Jen Raskis, who's one of the co-directors, has really worked a lot on the curriculum, and um, which is inspired in part by the Harvard Kennedy School. So we've been so far, and we wanna expand and work in different ways, but really have been focusing on some of the soft leadership. Like how can we empower women to take an initiative that they have, whether it's a book on Tarana HaMishbacha for the Frumer community, or whether it's a bat mitzvah program that's newer out of the box, whether it's designing a machitza that's more respectful and aesthetically pleasing, whether there's been like such a range of, of initiatives that have been proposed, and how can we take them from having this idea to seeing it into fruition to Yardina, um, Yardina Osband Glazer, Chana Sheffa, um, Chana Sheffa again, Jen Raskett, Aliza um, Abrams, Koenig, and also Shoshana Greenwald, um, who really helped um, develop this. And I would say that um, it's also something that we've been doing voluntarily. So in a way, in some ways, we're um, now not, we're also struggling with some of the very things that we're trying to resolve, which is also women feeling like they can have an idea and build it into fruition and that they have the capacity also and they deserve to also be compensated for their time and for their efforts. So I would say that the field, has that women's opportunities to engage in leadership opportunities in the Orthodox community has expanded tremendously over the past few decades. And also there's a lot of ways in which we can still grow. And I think there's a lot of spaces in which it's assumed and and, and I know this, this changes or looks different in the spectrum of Orthodox community, but I would say even in the United States, some of those um, soft informal, um, Uh, opportunities for leadership are the ones that are Hardest to crack and sometimes could be the most impactful
1: so Michelle I want to just bring us a little bit up to date in terms of what you're currently working on Um, I know that you are a psychologist in the SAR Academy, which will explain to us in a minute what that means and also that you're involved in, in Campstone two I would say really flagship modern orthodox Institutions each in their own kind of way So can you just tell us a little bit about what what you've been up to in the past few years working in those places?
2: Yeah. First of all, I feel very grateful that I um, get to work at and also send my children to institutions that I really believe in and that have really strong missions and values and also grateful to live. Extremely
1: not to be taken for granted. It's quite unusual. Yeah.
2: And also, I feel like we're living in this golden age where there are so many also not, I think these institutions are unique and special. And also, there's so many also amazing, um, amazing other institutions that are serving our community. Um, so I, you know, one thing that I would share is, um, maybe just a little narrative and also, um, just a reflection of this moment is, you know, Campstone and SAR both are so strongly connected to Israel and the way that they approach education is both um, academic and intellectual, and it's very immersive and spiritual and experiential. And we, you know, our students since the since the October seventh gather daily, every morning, as an entire community on the steps and say Tehillim, and sometimes hear from someone who's in Israel and sing Achinu and pray for the soldiers. And so it's it's a very much like a lived connection and community. And we're experiencing that now even more powerfully with Israel. And it's also how we live and experience other parts of Judaism and identity. So um, so having, being able to be in a community like that, that really lives su- Jewish values in such a powerful way. Is is really incredible. Um, my work in both of those institutions is as a psychologist, as a mental health professional, and I just feel I feel incredibly privileged to work with other professionals who are so attuned to children's emotional well being and who they are as humans. Um, and their, how their souls are doing is is as important as what they're learning. Um, and also um, to really partner with parents who are so invested in their children. And, and I think I know that you are such a deliberate, thoughtful parent. It is one of the most complicated, humbling roles or vocations or callings. And, um, you know, and they didn't tell me never- before,
1: Michelle. They didn't warn me before. <laughs>
2: Five by the later. way. <laughs> yeah, by the way, right? Um, I know hmm. I feel like we kind of we kind of needed to be a little naive to push us into this and and it's and it's miraculous and so hard at the same time. and I I feel really grateful that I'm able to work with parents and educators around what matters most, which is our children and them feeling, whole and full and them feeling like they're both nurtured and also held accountable and loved with limits and and all of those messy balances and dances that we're all striving to attain Um, so that's been i i feel very grateful i can't say that there aren't many nights that i don't lose sleep (laughs) over some of the work or some of my own parenting and and also there are just so many moments of incredible inspiration and blessing. so I, that's been a, a true gift for me. Um, and I I also have to say that I am inspired and I learn from my students or the staff I, at Campstone it's a very much youth empowered culture so I really work mostly directly with the counselors who are who are leading the counselors and I'm just I that gives me so much hope and optimism knowing who who our future, parents leaders educators citizens are it just just fills me with so much hope and optimism um
1: that's really beautiful it's interesting because i i think that you know there's so many different intersections of community and that there are others who are you know working in the mental health profession in in orthodox community in very you know in very western spaces that are (laughs) have slightly less positive perspectives so it's nice to hear um, one that feels empowered and inspired, I think that's very beautiful. So I guess, Michelle, as we sort of wind down this conversation, uh, and also directly connected to that, you know, your, your husband, who we sort of have mentioned as a, as a sidebar, is a Rabbi Yehuda Sarna, and, and he uh, has an official capacity as the Rabbi of the United Arab Emirates, right? Of, uh, if I am saying that correctly. Uh, I'm yeah. curious, again, also in light of the tremendous sort of earthquake that we're experiencing within Israel, outside of Israel, uh, if you could just briefly even speak to what that experience is like spending really the past 12 years engaged with the United Arab Emirates uh, and certainly also post a post-normalized naturalized relations with them if you could sort of i don't know, even just briefly speak to what that what that relationship looks like and what you think it could mean in some better world that we would hope we'll see in the future um between us and some of our neighbors <clears throat> Um,
2: yes, it's been a remarkable journey for my family. Um, I Yehuda started going to the UAE 12 plus years ago, and my children were very much a part of it in the beginning. You know, um, there were concerns about his safety or security there, not from, from him, but from grandparents. And it just felt like so foreign to be visiting the Middle East with a, with a kippah, an Arab like predominant in all an arab muslim country um as an orthodox jew and i think one of the things that my my children learned through um through seeing my husband go from young ages is having faith in the other and also really seeing how it came into fruition like the benevolence of the uae in being able to open their doors and this has evolved over time to Jews and the Jewish community as over time they've the Jewish communities have been able to pray um more publicly and they've benefited from the Abrahamic Family House where um my husband is is officially employed which is the first synagogue um to be built in the UAE and and really sending the message loud and clear that Judaism is a faith that has space and has and adds value um, in that part of the world. So I I hope that both as my family has realized um, the caution that's been needed in kind of visiting that area and have experienced in many different visits some of the ignorance or limited education that many from the local um, countries, I don't know if you know, but the UAE is only 13% Emirati. So 87% mm-hmm. of its the people that live there are a lot are from other Middle Eastern countries, including Jordan, Egypt, Syria, and hearing like what their, those people had heard about Israel or about the Jewish people. Um, and again, everyone was civil and respectful in part because the UAE set the tone very clearly. And I I think it was both humbling in how small the Jewish people are in how vulnerable we can be and how limited many people in the world are to actually directly connecting with Jewish people and was also incredibly hopeful and that Even with the tremendous pressure since October 7th, that the UAE has continued to stand by the Jewish community and to stand behind the Abraham Accord.
1: I know you have to go, Michelle, but I really just wanted to thank you for taking this time to give us a window into your life, which has had so many fascinating chapters, and we're looking forward to the future ones as well. Thank you so much.
2: I feel so grateful for the work that you are doing, and I'm so inspired by both your Torah scholarship and your wisdom about humanity. And thank you so much for inviting me.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.